It was up, wasn't it? It was prayers. It was joining us together in prayer to the Lord. And so I think that was a a very wonderful time of worship together. Uh, As we begin this new year, um, I feel led to um, do a two-part series on marriage. Uh, There have been a lot of uh, people in our congregation who have asked me about marriage conferences or is there something that we can do to uh, address this issue of marriage. And so I thought what I'd do is uh, share some uh, material that I have used a lot in my pre-marriage counseling as people prepare for their wedding day. And and, uh, it all comes right straight from the Word. And uh, so I want to talk about the foundation of marriage today. One of my disciplines in life is to read through the Bible in some type of a organized way. And so I follow a system of Bible reading. And um, throughout the beginning of the year, um, one of the passages that I've been reading through is the book of Ezra. And if you know anything about the book of Ezra, it recounts the time when the people who were exiled in Babylon are given the freedom to return to Jerusalem And as they return to Jerusalem, one of the first things that they do is they begin to rebuild the temple that was destroyed when the Babylonians uh, sacked Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And they burned the temple to the ground and uh, they knocked down all of the stones. And and the first thing that they did in in beginning the construction of this temple is they laid a foundation. And so when they laid the foundation of the temple... Uh, there was a lot of rejoicing, and there was some who wept. And the reason is that the foundation of a structure helps us to visualize what the structure is going to look like. And so those who had never seen a temple before were rejoicing that they're soon going to be able to see a temple. And those who had seen the glories of Solomon's temple were weeping because they remember the glories of the past temple. And all this happened because there was a foundation. Because the foundation reveals what the structure is going to look like. And so as we look at this idea of marriage, I want to set a foundation for us from the life of Adam and Eve, recorded for us in Genesis chapter 2. And I think that hopefully that will set the stage for us as we build a portrait of what a godly Christian marriage is all about. Let me just give a couple of thoughts about marriage. Uh, When did God create Adam? You ever thought about that? Well, it had to be close to midday because he was created before Eve. I like that for a groaner to start out the new year. I wonder if Adam ever said to Eve, watch it, there's plenty more ribs where you came from. Of course, we all know that God created Eve because he was worried that Adam would frequently become lost in the garden because he'd never asked for directions. God made Adam and Eve, or God made Adam, he rested, then he made Eve, and since then no one rested. (laughs) Um, 
when God finished with the creation of Adam, he stepped back, he scratched his head and said, I can do better than that. So he created Eve. <laughs> well, let's look at the phone. What was that? Quit while I'm ahead. All right, let's look at the Bible. <laughs> Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The word of the Lord. Marriage is God's idea. It was God's idea to do this. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 says... um, It is not good for Adam to be alone. After God created stays 1 through 6, he said, this is good. It's very good. But then we get to chapter 2, and considering Adam's life by himself, he said, it's not good. Now, may I say that I don't really think that this is a commentary on the superiority of married life over single life. I don't think that's what that means here at all. Um, the Apostle Paul made it very clear in, Rome, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that life as a single has much to commend it. I think what we're talking about here is that God's purpose for creation was to create a people to inhabit his kingdom on the earth. And if Adam was alone, it was not good because there is no way for him to procreate and populate the earth. And so what God did is he gave Adam Eve. He took a rib from Adam, created someone other than Adam, and then gave her back to Adam. Theologian Augustine said, if God had intended woman to rule over man, he would have taken her out of Adam's head. Had he designed her to be his slave, he would have taken her out of his feet. But God took woman out of man's side so that she would be an equal to him. Yet Eve was profoundly different from Adam. Chromosomes of a man and a woman are different. Their anatomy is different A woman can bear children. Man can't. They're 
different. The Bible clearly teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman who are different from one another. Two people, not the same. Two people who create together something greater than the sum total of their individual lives. So with those thoughts, I'd like to share with you four components of a healthy marriage, a biblical marriage. And then after I suggest these four components, I want to give you a summary summary concept for us to think about. So four components of marriage. First, God's model for marriage includes the joy of friendship. The joy of friendship. Verse 18 says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Eve was a helper companion. I'd like to suggest to you that this word means friend. It means friend. Traditionally, this word translated helper has a connotation that conveys something other than what the Hebrew word really means. Usage of this term does not suggest a subordinate role, a connotation which English helper could have. In the Bible, God is frequently described as the helper, the one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, the one who meets our needs. But in this context, the word seems to express the idea of an indispensable companion. That's what a helper is. The essence of friendship, companionship, is when two people look at the same thing and they're both moved in the same way and they exclaim to one another, You too? You feel the same way as I feel? You too? You see, friendship must be more than the friendship itself. There must be something about your relationship, something that both friends are committed to and passionate about besides one another. Friendship and marriage is much more than, I just want to be with you. Because I just want to be with you will only go so far. C.S. Lewis writes, Do you love me means, do you see the same truth? Or at least, do you care about the same truth? Because, he writes, the very essence of friendship is that we should want something more than friends. We should want something more than friends. It's not like, Well, I don't care about football or I don't care about gardening. I just want to be with you. That will not produce lasting friendship because friendship must be about something. This word in Genesis 2 describes a mutual friendship that can be celebrated where two people bring 100% to something. C.S. Lewis concludes by saying, those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. 
So I would suggest to you, if you're married, make this new year a quest to either build upon something that you share together or to find something that you share together. Something that, that gives you a common, a common hunger, a common passion, a, a common search, something new. Maybe you've been married for 45 years like my wife and I have been married. We're always looking for something new that we can do together, that we love to do together. And of course, our favorite thing to do together is to pursue God. We listen to sermons together. She called me up last night and she said, I just got to tell you about the sermon that I heard today. And we talked about the sermon that you, we love God together. That's our common passion, our common pursuit. That's almost a given when you think about Christian marriage, isn't it? But I'd encourage you to think about something else that you love to do together. Find something that you can passionately say, you too? That's an indispensable ingredient to a, a companionship that builds on a healthy marriage. Second, I would suggest that this text tells us about the pleasure of physical intimacy. The two shall become one flesh. In some religious circles, physical intimacy is something that's dirty. Others view it as a duty. Some limit physical intimacy to procreation, although that certainly is important. But all of these fall short, I would suggest to you, of God's gift that he gives to us of giving and receiving with one another. And if we just think about giving and receiving when we think about physical intimacy, it raises that level of Christian, of, of, of life in a Christian marriage, giving and receiving fulfills the heart's longing for physical intimacy. Third, not only friendship, not only physical intimacy, but the fulfillment of emotional transparency. You see all the different emotions that are expressed in these faces? The Bible says in verse 25, Adam and Eve were both naked and felt no shame. Here is what two individuals totally exposed to one another, totally transparent one another, with one another, feeling safe to express whatever it is that happens in their lives with one another. They're transparent. They have nothing to hide. Adam and Eve were so comfortable with one another, they could be completely transparent. No fear, no secrets, no agenda. There was total acceptance, total honesty, complete, perfect understanding. Now, of course, we know that that's not easy for us today, is it? We all have flaws. We have hidden desires, hidden emotions, private thoughts. But to be completely transparent with our spouse requires grace. It requires unconditional acceptance and love and, above all, trust. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But for now, I'd like to suggest that the foundation of a healthy marriage relationship is Emotional transparency, my favorite thing to experience, and I've said this before, 
when my wife and I are together is when I feel that she feels so safe with me that she can say anything. Nothing gives me more more fulfillment that, oh boy, this is a healthy marriage. Look how safe she feels with me. That's just the greatest compliment she could ever give me is to express that, that she trusts me. Third, or finally, the security of commitment. The security of commitment. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. You know, when you get, a, you get married, you give one another rings. And that ring on your finger says, don't mess with my life. My life belongs to, to my wife. This right here. And someone looks and they see that ring, hands off. Someone looks at my wife with that ring, hands off. We are committed to one another. And that's what these words, leave and cleave, mean. God did not put a parent and child in the garden. (laughs) He put two adults, a husband and a wife, in the garden. We leave our parents. Boy, that's the hardest thing for parents. Let go of their kids. And let their kids learn the hard lessons that we learned. When we went out on our own. But then there's a very powerful word. That word cleave. That word cleave refers to a glue. That is, that is more solid than the two elements that it brings together. Because if you take the cleave, the glue... And say you have a piece of wood on one side and a piece of wood on the other and the cleave joins them together. You try to separate that wood, it's not going to break in the glue. It's going to rip part of the wood apart. See, that's what, what the Bible says is our commitment. We are so committed that nothing will separate us. So to summarize, marriage is an inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out just as chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and then with the breath of kindness Blow the rest away. Those are the words of Tim Keller in his awesome book, The Meaning of Marriage. Now that doesn't mean that you can just blow your husband or your wife away with unkind thoughts and say whatever you want to say and be um, to be inappropriate with them because there's this, this commitment that you have with each other. No. But what it does mean is that in the ebbs and flows of life. What you say to one another can, you can make a difference between giving offense and taking offense. And you can try real hard not to give offense and you can try harder to say, well, I'm not going to take offense. 
And I think you can see that at least three of these principles apply not only to marriage, but they apply to all relationships, especially in the local church. Friendship, transparency, commitment. That makes a healthy church. Add to sexual, physical intimacy, that makes a healthy marriage. But we all know that God's model for marriage was temporarily derailed. We know in Genesis chapter 3 that sin was introduced into the world and that sin infected the friendship and infected the physical intimacy and infected the emotional transparency and it infected the security of commitment. Their friendship was infected and so is ours because instead of being an indispensable companion, Eve became an independent tempter. Totally on her own, she wandered from God, which is the common pursuit that made their friendship strong. That's what happens when marriages begin to crumble. We we turn from God and we pursue our own agenda. Adam, on the other hand, instead of leading his wife and nurturing her back to the Lord, simply stood by, uninvolved, let her make the most fateful decision ever made. He was with her, verse 6 says, but he wasn't present. Ever felt that in your marriage? You're together, but the other one's not there. Adam was there, but he was absent. He was not involved. He left his wife alone. Neither Adam nor Eve were much of a friend to the other. Instead of physical intimacy and emotional transparency, there was self-centeredness, cover-up, hiding secrets. It's like we do in our relationships. So they sewed fig leaves over them and began to keep things from one another and began to think that they could keep things from God. And instead of commitment to one another, there was defensiveness. Eve blamed the serpent. (laughs) And Adam, good heavens, he blamed God. Does that ever happen in your marriage? Does that ever happen in your relationships in the church? But it's not my fault. It's her fault. It's his fault. See, that's what, that's what happened when, when this, this sinfulness came in to Adam and Eve in their life. And God knew it. And so he immediately took steps to heal. And when God took steps to heal, he gave us the potential for healthy relationships and a healthy marriage again. Because God took an animal and sacrificed that animal shed that animal's blood and made a covering. And he clothed Adam and Eve in his righteousness. And that's the image of the cross. And so that's why I say temporarily derailed. Because God never leaves us in a sinful state, in a dysfunctional state forever. He gives us the opportunity and he comes to us by his grace 
And he tells us, let me heal you. Let me heal your friendship. Let me heal your intimacy. Let me give you true transparency. And let me solidify your commitment with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is my fundamental, foundational principle for you to think about as you think about this message today. We can reclaim God's original model for marriage and all relationships when we apply the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to the sinfulness of our own lives. The Bible clearly teaches us that all the problems we experience in life, and especially in marriage, are not caused by the people who disappoint us. They're not caused by the people who hurt us. They're not caused by the people who offend us. And in marriage, our problems are not caused by our spouse. The problems we experience in life, in relationships, and in marriage are by and large caused by the sinfulness that's within us. Most marriages would be dramatically improved if each partner would deal with their own issues before God instead of thinking about the issues of their spouse. The same is true in local churches. If we think about our own issues, oh, how healthy our relationships would be. So there's a marriage myth. And that marriage myth says, my own woundedness is the most important element in this marriage. And so my goal is to get my spouse to recognize just how wounded I am and then understand me. And once my spouse understands just how wounded I am, then they'll take care of me. And they'll love me. And they will conform their lives to meet my needs. And of course, that's probably not going to happen. And you know why? Because your spouse is thinking the same thing about you. The alternative results in a marriage that is a negotiated ceasefire if we expect our spouse to meet our needs. That happens so much in relationships in the church as well. We'll just learn to get along and keep some measure of civility. But there's never change. There's never growth. There's never fulfillment. So let me give you a challenge for the new year. Let's cross out this myth. Let's say, I'm not going to believe that anymore. You know what that's like? It's like saying, okay, um, I've got $10,000 in debt. And you've got $10,000 in debt. So let's get marriage. You pay my $10,000 in debt, and I'll pay your $10,000 in debt. And then when we're married, we won't have any more debts. That doesn't work. Now you've got $20,000 in debts. That's the truth. 
by the way, if I could pay your $10,000 in debt, how come I'm not paying my own debt? No, we come into a relationship and we always expect someone else to heal our own woundedness. And all that does is leave us disappointed. And then that disappointment grows into bitterness and begin to walk down the path of dysfunction in our relationships and our marriage is on the rocks. So what's a better way to apply this principle for marriage? It's this. My own selfishness and sinfulness is the fundamental problem and I must treat my problem more seriously than I do those of my spouse. Each of us has total access to our own selfishness, our own sinfulness, and nobody else has the access to them that we do. And nobody can change them except us. Now, this is a hard message, isn't it? Some of us truly are between a rock and a hard place, and some of us seriously are wounded and hurt, and some of us, God forbid, are legitimate victims of abuse. And if that's the case, please see somebody. Please take steps to remove yourself from that abuse. No one should be in an abusive relationship. But for most of us, the Bible challenges us to stop making excuses and start applying God's grace to our own lives the way that God applied his grace to Adam and Eve. He covered them with the blood of the sacrifice. And for us, he covers them with the blood of the Lord Jesus. That's the gospel. God's grace will change us. God's grace will teach us. God's grace will sustain us. And sure, we may be hurting in a relationship, but refusing to face our own issues, searching for fulfillment in anyone other than God, anything other than the gospel, refusing to drink from the wellspring of God's grace, refusing to come to Jesus and drinking deeply from the Spirit of God, leaves the solution on the sidelines in any relationship, but especially in marriage. Come together and put the grace of Jesus first. And he will nurture your friendship. He will renew your intimacy. He will facilitate transparency, and he will strengthen your commitment if you come to him. If you come to him. These are things God will do when our heart is right with him. So you know what the biblical view of marriage is? Actually, this is the biblical view of relationships in the church. But applied to marriage, it's this. One flawed person married to another flawed person in a fallen world. That's marriage. One flawed person married to another flawed person 
living together in a fallen world. How can you do that without Jesus? <laughs> but with Jesus. Oh, <laughs> oh! now we can live a life of a miracle every day. I mean, God can take us and give us happiness for 45 years? Come on, that's impossible. Well, yes, it is. Apart from Jesus. All this happens when we apply the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when these two flawed people come together in Jesus, they create a space of stability and love, communication and security, creating a heaven, a haven in a heartless world. Then we can give to our marriage partner out of the resources that God has given to us. And now we've got a person who is in the process of being healed, living with another person who is in the process of being healed, coming together, helping one another succeed. And that's the topic of my message next week. How can we help each other succeed in our marriage relationship? I hope you'll come back next week and learn how we can help our spouse succeed and so how our marriage can be successful and fulfilling and a joyful experience for us as we walk with him together in his grace. Please stand with me as we close our service. Father in heaven, the truth is so clear in your word. I trust, Lord, that your spirit will take the truth of your word and apply it to hearts that are receptive to it. There's no fix it. There's no step one, step two, step three equals a happy, fulfilling marriage. It takes effort. It takes friendship. In the midst of intimacy, emotional transparency built on commitment. May this be a year when we grow in all of those aspects that our homes and our marriages can be a place where the world will look and see the Lord Jesus Christ at work and where his grace reigns supreme. And I pray that, Lord, for all the relationships that we enjoy in our local church as well. May we expect only perfection from you and continue to be growing in grace one with another throughout this new year. So, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God the Father, and may the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide upon us in our marriages and upon Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, both now and forevermore. And may you use us as a light unto the world that needs light so desperately. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and all God's people said, we got Sunday school starting up this week. And we're going to have a robust discussion 
up here in cross training I, I'm anticipating. So let's go have a cup of coffee. We'll see you back in our Sunday school hour in just a little bit. God bless. You're dismissed. <laughs>